Well, as we get started this morning, I want to invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 is where we're going to be today. Um, before I, I dive into God's Word, um, I want to share with you something I'm really excited about in the life of our church. This is something that we tried uh, for, for a first time last year um, that we called Life Together. And let me tell you about what Life Together is intended to be. It is intended to be a time where multiple generations are all in the same space, and the hope is that that one generation will hand off the faith to another. Um, one of the growing concerns in the church today is the number of, of children and then teens that then leave the faith. Um, right now, the statistic is about four out of five. Once they get into their college years, they walk away from a profession of faith in Christ. Um, there's no involvement in church. They may boomerang back later when they have children or when they're in their 30s, but even those numbers are on the decline as well. And so it's important for us to understand the significance of what God were, God's word says about how we hand off the faith. It's not for children just about showing up at a service, even being in this room, but about the interaction and the relationships that take place. Additionally, it's important for younger men to have older men pouring into them and for younger women to have older women pouring into them and for them to be able to share life and to share the faith with one another. Titus points directly to that, tells us that that's God's design for his church. And so we also in our life together time, we'll have time for men to be with other men of all generations and women to be with other women of all generations in order to grow in their faith together. September 11th will be our first Life Together evening. And so here's what I wanna encourage you to do. First of all, I want you to participate. Uh, I really wanna encourage you. I know that sometimes we think about Sunday evening as kind of like just a, a downtime before the week gets started, but I wanna encourage you to see it as a together time for the body of Christ to come together, to be strengthened in our faith so that we can live for him in the week to come. Um, so the activities that we're planning, the Bible studies, the interaction with one another are all intentional toward that end. But here's the challenge I wanna offer offer to you. If on Sunday mornings right now, you are going to a Bible study group, I want to first of all, thank you. We, we want for our adults to be in Bible study groups and participating in that way. But in order for you to do that, there's someone else that is doing children's ministry and preschool ministry, and they're pouring their life into our children. And so I want to ask and maybe challenge you with this. If you're attending Bible study on Sunday morning, would you consider serving in preschool or children's ministry on Sunday evening? Vice versa, if you you are one of our teachers that every Sunday morning is missing adult Bible study in order to teach children, this would be a wonderful time for you without, without any guilt to be able to, to come to an adult class and to be able to be in God's word. And that's a way that we can serve each other even in the course of one day and share in that responsibility. So September 11th, there's sign up tables in the, in, the, in the outside of the foyer right here for you to be able to sign up to help with our children. You may say, what do I have to offer? I loved last year when Bill Nix is right here here, longtime member, um, came up here with his car and we went outside with the kids and he began to explain how pistons work and how, you know, a transmission works and how it generates energy and talking about some of these other new technologies that are out there, you know, moving away from gasoline engines to electric cars and how does all that work and those sort of things. The kids were so engaged with something that was a passion for him, vehicles and building motors and all those things, that he was able to do that in a place where they're learning about Christ, where they're learning about the faith, but they're also learning about the world that God has created. So if you think, I don't have anything to offer a child, what are you into? 
Um, that could be the very platform, the very relational atmosphere where you actually pass on your faith to someone else. And so if you're curious, if you want more information, you can head up to the tables in the foyer, but I want to encourage everyone to be involved in life together as we grow. This morning, as we turn into God's word in 1 Peter, we do so with the acknowledgement that everyone wants to know the future. Everyone wants to know the future, right? Wouldn't you love to know what tomorrow holds? Wouldn't you love to know what five years, 10 years, 20 years from now looks like in great detail? You see, we spend over $2 billion a year as Americans for people to read our future or tell us our future with tarot cards and psychics and other things like this. It, we as Americans spend nearly $4 billion a year for people to analyze athletes so that we can bet on the right team or the right athlete. We spend nearly $60 billion a year as Americans for people to help us predict which stocks to buy or investments to make in order to make the most money. We are a people very much oriented to the future of wanting to know the future but before we throw stones at any of those wanting to know the future, let me say that the Bible is very concerned about you and I knowing the future as well. In fact, the Bible goes so far as to say that our hope in this life as Christians comes from knowing the future. But this is where we part ways, part ways with all of the industries that I just spoke of. Each of these psychics, sports analysts, financial advisors, by the way, if you're a sports analyst or financial advisor, please know that I'm not calling you a psychic and mean no offense by lumping you together in this sentence. But each of these have exclusionary clauses in documents that you sign when you pay for their services. Each of them, even psychics, or perhaps I should say especially psychics, admit that their work may be wrong. For financial advisors, they depend, on, they depend on mountains of data to provide certain reliableness, reasonableness for their advice, but COVID wasn't, re wasn't reasonable. 9-11 wasn't reasonable. The, 20, the 2008 housing bubble wasn't reasonable. Sure, we knew some nations and groups hated Americans. We knew that ninja loans were a bad idea, no income, no job, no assets. Sure, we knew that a global pandemic would have devastating effects. We all saw the movie Outbreak, but we did not know with certainty the specifics of each of those events. But I have good news for you today. We have certainty about the most important aspects of our existence. We have certainty about what will be. We may not know the day or the hour of the things to come, but we know with certainty that these things will happen. And all of this certainty comes from the gospel. Now, most of us think about the gospel primarily or even exclusively as a message about what happened in the past. Such is understandable for the gospel certainly does proclaim a message of what has happened historically. But what we forget is that what, is in the past for us was at one point the future for some people. We forget that what for us is in the past was at one point the present for some people. And therefore we fail to realize that all of them together with us are to have an orientation that looks ahead to something, to someone who is returning to fully rescue his own and bring them into his country 
and bring them into his kingdom, bring them into his governance forever. And we see it all today here in this passage in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 down through 13. I wanna invite you to stand for the reading of God's powerful and good word today. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated. They inquired into what time or what circumstances the spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels long to catch a glimpse into these things. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Father, this morning, I pray for revival, that you would revive us by your spirit. You would do it through your word and you would do it, God, in such a way that your glory is revealed in every part of our lives. There will be no stone left unturned in our lives where your glory is hidden. Lord, we need you. We need an orientation change, Father, that orients us to you. We confess, God, that we put our hope in so many things that fail us. All the while you are inviting us to place us, to place our hope in the one, the one who is to come. And so orient us today, God, by your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You can be seated. Concerning this salvation, this all concerns the salvation of your souls. That's what verse 10 is pointing back to. Now, let me say that if the Lord saves your soul, then he will also one day save your body and the two shall be rejoined forever. Before the baptism, as I was praying with Eric, we prayed and were able to give thanks, Sparky and Terry and myself with Eric, all holding hands, that even though his body will perish, one day it will be resurrected to perish no more. What, what is corruptible today will one day be incorruptible. And so therefore he has hope that extends beyond what he faces in this moment. You see, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 57 says this. Paul is writing, he's answering the question about what is the nature of this resurrected body? He's trying to help them understand the importance, the centrality of resurrection to their hope in this life, to their orientation of what is to come. And he says, what I'm saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed. He uses fall asleep over and over again in the scriptures to talk about what we call death. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. 
For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is speaking here about the resurrection of the dead, answering a self-imposed anticipated question of how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have when they come? And it's a separate sermon for another day, but it's important to note that God is not simply concerned with the salvation of your soul and my soul. End of story. His salvation includes a resurrected body for you and for me. And how do we know this? The gospel tells me so. The gospel is not simply that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. End. The gospel says Jesus died on the cross for your sins, was buried for three days, and then was bodily resurrected, seen by many witnesses, ascended into heaven, and will one day return to judge the living and the dead. We need to reclaim the fullness of the gospel so that we can reclaim the fullness of our salvation. He's not simply wiped away your sin. He has given you eternal life. And therefore, you have no longer to fear in this life death because you know that it will be swallowed up in his day. You want to know what most people fear? Death. That's what we most fear. It orients our entire existence. We spend our lives just trying to stay alive. And while I'm not calling us to have a reckless abandon where we just do dumb things, we spend the majority of our life avoiding death rather than living life. And the gospel frees us up to live for God's glory, to not fear anymore. That's why Christian martyrs happen all the time because they are able to have a perspective that sees beyond their death to know that it's worth it to know that it's worth it in the moment of their death to be received into his glory. And they know that it will be worth it in the day of Christ's return when their body will be resurrected to perish no more. So in view, this passage is about the salvation of our souls, but biblically the salvation of our souls includes the salvation of our body for Christ was bodily resurrected. Now concerning this salvation, Paul, I mean, Peter writes, I'm gonna keep messing up and saying Paul, it's just the P names, you know? So Peter, 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 Peter. Peter, concerning this salvation, he says, the prophets. Now in our Bibles, the prophets include large books. If you turn back into the, the part of your Bible called the Old Testament, there's gonna be lots of different books of the Bible. And some of those are really big books of the Bible, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. These are men who were known as prophets. But there's also smaller books of the Old Testament, and they are also prophets. Prophets like Jonah, Obadiah, Nahum, some of whom we've looked at even recently. Additionally, Moses, who is credited with the first five books of the Old Testament, was considered a prophet. And prophets were included in Israel's historic writings as well. When you read First and Second Samuel, Samuel was a prophet, Nathan was a prophet, and others. And there were others included in the history of Israel that were lesser known. People didn't really know who they were. We don't know a whole lot about them, where they came from, a lot about their message, but they were identified as prophets to Israel. 
So in general terms, the entire Old Testament carries a prophetic message. First five books, the historical books, the prophecy, even the Psalms have a prophetic nature because that's how the writers of the New Testament use them many times, that these things were speaking about things that were to come. So the whole Old Testament, if you think about it in, in broad terms, is prophetic, is speaking about the things that will be. While understanding their message as well as a unified Old Testament message, but understanding their message as a unified Old Testament message can be challenging. But the New Testament and passages like this one today help us understand the overall message of the prophets. And notice how Peter is making clear to the believers, here's how to read the Old Testament. Here's how you can put on a set of glasses so that when you read the Old Testament, it's not like, well, this is just all really weird. But you can remember there's a unifying message that brings it all together and then be able to see these things at work. So what does he say? Well, he goes through and he says, first of all, that these, the, the prophets prophesied about the grace that would come to you. That's the first part that he uses to describe the prophets. They were prophesying about the grace that would come to you. So we're speaking about things that would come because many of them lived hundreds and hundreds of years before the audience that Peter is writing to. Second, they searched and carefully investigated. So these weren't, you know, I think sometimes today we have a mindset of what prophecy is, that it's somebody that maybe just kind of gets caught in an emotional spell and then begins to say things about what's going to happen in your life, that you're about to come into a lot of money, you're about to get a promotion at work, you know, those sort of things. And so because of some of that idea of prophecy, we really kind of distance ourselves from it. And we think, you know, it's probably just kind of weird and I don't think I want to do that. Um, and so we kind of hold it at arm's length, but understood biblically prophecy was how people were hearing from God. That This is how God had ordained for people to receive a message from him was through his prophets. And so they were speaking, but, but then you would have to ask, what were they searching and carefully investigating? I mean, if God is speaking through them, what is there to know? All they're supposed to do is just say what God said to say, right? What are they looking into? Well, Peter makes clear, they were investigating, inquiring into what time and what circumstances the spirit of Christ. So this points to the preexistence of Christ before his incarnation. So like, there's just things along the way, lots of theology here in this passage, but, but, but moving on, he says the spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance. So in other words, the spirit of Christ is testifying to men who lived hundreds of years before Jesus would be born of a virgin, that one day one was going to come born of a virgin. The spirit of Christ was testifying to men hundreds of years before he would die on a cross that one day he would die on a cross and cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. Hundreds and hundreds, even thousands of years before the spirit of Christ was testifying to individual men and women that were speaking to God's people in different ways and through songs and through writings and all of these things that one day the lamb of God would take away the sins of the world. And then all of, the, all of the sacrifices, all of the suffering, all of the sin, all of the law, all of the aspects that we see as these major threads that run through the Old Testament into the new would find their fulfillment in Jesus. And so they were looking and trying to understand these things. They, they weren't just mindlessly saying, well, God said this, I have no clue. They, they were wanting to know. They were looking into these things, but then it was revealed to them, the third aspect about the prophets, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. Men at cost of their lives wrote down these things. 
men at cost of their lives were faithful to proclaim God's word and then suffer the consequences, whatever they be. And they were doing that for you. Peter is saying this message is sacred. It is covered with blood. That what you hold, this Old Testament message, it's not meant to be obscure. It's not meant to be weird. It is meant to be sacred. A message that God was proclaiming through his prophets for hundreds of years so that when the day would come, when Christ would be born, when Christ would die, when Christ would be resurrected, that you would see this was his plan because it was unanticipated, it was unexpected. It threw people off. People didn't know what to do with this message. But the fact that it had been being foretold for hundreds and hundreds of years helped the people say this was his plan. The death of Christ, his king, was his plan. The resurrection of his son was his plan all along. And that gave them assurance that the one who is in control of all things, that as they were going through difficulty themselves, the one who had a plan for Jesus and great victory on the other side, they could go through their difficulty as well, knowing that just as Christ suffered, so they too would be united with him in his suffering, but so will they also be united with him in his victory ultimately. And that gave them great assurance. That's the, the message of the gospel applied to believers then and believers today. So here's some key takeaways from these verses that we've covered so far. God oriented his people by his word. God oriented his people by his word. You say, well, Chad, you're talking about thousands of years ago and now first Peter's written 2000 years ago. So Chad, how is this a relevant message for us today? It must us to be looking for prophets. There's plenty of those that you can find on TV. They're gonna to claim to be a, a fresh message, a hidden message, a, a, a secret message. Beware, beware, beware. Instead, behold, behold, behold the wondrous works of God revealed in his word. Reve behold the message of the prophets and how they foretold the sufferings and the resurrection of Christ. Behold the life of Jesus bound whole in four gospels. Behold the advancement of his kingdom as the gospel spread to Jews and Gentiles. Behold the revelation of what will come, the new heaven and the new earth. The portraits that we see of every nation, tribe and tongue gathered around his throne and worshiping him. God is orienting us today in every part of life, in every season, in every challenge by his word. And he is still ordained that through his word, he would orient his people. This was grace, truly pointing to grace. Second, Old Testament prophecy finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. You would think that that's not a controversial statement. But it is. There are plenty of Old Testament scholars who would disagree with me right now. And they're a lot smarter than me. Can I just say, like, they know a lot more stuff than I do. But the reality that the church has held to for 2,000 years, including the original writers of the New Testament, is that all of the promises of God find their yes in Him. And that orients everything. That changes the way that we read our Bibles by design. We didn't come up with it. This isn't a creative hermeneutic that we came up with. This is how it's been ordained by God that we would read the Bible. This includes his sufferings and the glories that would follow. 
You see, that glories that would follow part are glories that are still to be revealed. Christ has not yet returned. So the gospel message, the prophetic message proclaimed about Christ in the Old Testament, there are still aspects that await fulfillment. All of creation is longing for the revelation of the sons of God including the the past of his creation, those past followers who are cloud of witnesses, as the writer of Revelation says. We're all longing for that day, the day of Christ that will come. And thirdly, God's people always do well to think of future generations. Don't miss that in this. It was revealed to the prophets. They were not doing this for themselves, but for you. What are you doing for the next generation? How are you holding on to the mystery of the faith in such a way that it will be handed off in a pure form to the next generation? We need men and women to lead in the church of Christ who are thinking deeply about the faith, who are not simply going through the motions of showing up on a Sunday and then returning to life as usual. We need men and women who are taking seriously that if God is giving you children, how am I discipling my children? How am I pouring the faith into my children? You can't save your child, but you can tell them what salvation is. You you can't make them respond to Jesus, but you can tell them that Jesus invites them to respond. You can communicate all of these things to your children if you have children. But we need men and women in the church who are taking seriously, what does it mean to study and to understand and apply and teach the word of God? in our classes, in our Bible study groups, in life together, in our children's ministry, with our youth, in all of life, and then to go and live for God's glory. Ken Carut was very hesitant about me using his name today. And I understand it. Some of you are like, don't you ever use my name, you know, in a sermon. That's how Ken was. Ken's like, I don't want any of the credit. I didn't do anything. And he's right. He didn't do anything. God did something in him. God changed Ken, God saved Ken and Denise. And there are now physicians that wanna live for his glory. They wanna be godly doctors. Do you wanna be a godly lawyer? Do you wanna be a godly teacher? Do you wanna be a godly business person, a banker, a financial advisor, someone that's working in a library, someone that's, that's, that's working uh, in a delivery pos- position? I mean, like whatever it is that your job is, do you wanna be a godly one of those? If the answer is yes, then this is what you need. You need to be scripture fed. It's one of our core convictions. And as you are scripture fed, you, your life is becoming in conformity with the word of God so that as you hand off the faith to the next generation, that it's clean. It's not marred with the teachings of men. It's not bound by tradition, but instead it's handed off in its pure form from one generation to the next. Because I'll tell you right now, there's a generation right now that is looking at us and they're saying, prove it, prove it. Put your money where your mouth is. And any teaching that we've just kind of like adopted as the church, that we've just kind of let like stick around for whatever reason, they're saying, "Uh uh-uh. And they're not just saying, "Uh uh-uh to the teaching, they're saying, "Uh uh-uh to the church. We need to let that wake us up not to try to be more relevant, but to be more faithful. They're fine if you're faithful. If they see it, they're like, okay, I at least understand where you are. They may disagree with you, but they can respect that you're being faithful to this. But it's when you and I just say, well, that's the way it's always been. No tolerance, no tolerance. 
And so we've got to be people of the word. Now I'm preaching, I'm sorry. Verse 12, these things have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit. Here's some key takeaways. The gospel is essential to a correct understanding of God. Lots of people have taken bits of the Old Testament to support many ideas about God. Let me say that again. Lots of people have taken bits of the Old Testament to support many ideas about God. If you wanna support an ethnocentric idea, you can take portions of the Old Testament and use them as support. Just take that verse out of its context and make it mean that. If you wanna support, support polygamy, you can take some characters out of the Old Testament and support it. If you wanna support genocide, you can take some portions out of the Old Testament and use it for your support. If you wanna support inf uh, infanticide where you kill infants, you can find some verses in the Old Testament that seem to support that. If you want to support slavery, you can take some verses out of the Old Testament to support that. And you say, Chad, shouldn't we just annex the Old Testament then? All of these and more have been done with the Old Testament, but none of these, none of these instances that I just cited use the gospel as a lens for understanding the Old Testament, which is the one way of seeing and reading the Old Testament that we are commended and commanded to do in the New Testament. We are to see everything through the light of Christ. It's only through the gospel that we see that death in every form is a consequence of sin. And it's only through the gospel that we understand that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's only through the gospel that we see that the law given by Moses was good, but it was unable to save. It's only through the gospel that we learn the divine design of atonement, of the need for a blood sacrifice. But we learn in the New Testament through the gospel of the insufficiency of the blood of animals to take away our sin, to cleanse our guilty consciences and to cover over our guilt. It's only through the gospel that we meet both the justice and mercy of God mingled at the cross of Christ. It's only through the gospel that we meet the only begotten son of God, sent from heaven, born of a virgin, God with us, Emmanuel, his name means the Lord saves. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's only through the gospel that we learn that we are slaves to sin until Jesus sets us free. It's only through the gospel that we learn that all of creation is groaning and waiting for the revelation of the sons of God, meaning that everything in all of creation longs for Jesus to be globally recognized and worshiped as king. Only the gospel tells us that forgiveness does not make gender distinctions, saving men more than women or women more than men. This forgiveness does not make ethnic distinctions, saving Jews more than Gentiles or Gentiles more than Jews or any other distinction of race and, and, and ethnicity that we come up with. Only the gospel makes sense of all of the brokenness that we see and we feel, the brokenness that we endure, the brokenness we inflict. The gospel is essential to a correct understanding of God. That is important. And that is, world, that is a difference in the way you understand God than any other religion in the world that the gospel is the way you understand God. If you don't have the gospel, you misunderstand God. You may understand something about him. You may say, well, he's the, a creator. Well, even the demons in hell know that, but they don't worship him. They don't adore him. They don't rightly revere him and give their lives to him, but they know that he created everything. We need the gospel. Second, the gospel is an articulated message. Today, we resist this. I might even say that we hate this. I, didn't, I know nobody's gonna say amen to that, but I know that in our hearts, we hate this reality that we're supposed to tell the gospel. We're like, oh, put me in another Bible study. 
before you send me to tell people about Jesus. But we must reclaim this if we want to experience God. A generation that refuses to articulate the gospel is one that will be characterized by a cold love for God and a miserable love for idols. A generation that refuses to articulate the gospel is one that refuses to love their neighbor while being obsessed with being loved by their neighbor. Longing for their neighbor's approval, longing for their neighbor's acceptance. A failure to articulate the gospel is not only dangerous, it can even suggest that we are not who we think we are. A disciple makes disciples. If you don't make disciples, it should absolutely occasion the question, am I really a disciple? Please hear me, the text challenges me also with these realities, but there is hope. The gospel is an articulated message by the Holy Spirit. You say, Chad, I am so fearful of talking to somebody. Chad, you, it's easy for you to say, Chad, you work in a church, it's your job to talk to people about Jesus. But if I say anything about Jesus in my workplace, I'm fired. I'm gonna break a regulation. It's gonna cost me something. And I wanna say, I respect you for, for the difficulty of what you face in your workplace. But I also know this, that if you will give your career to God and say, God, I wanna live for you right where I am. You saw it this morning. God will likely send people to you to ask about the hope that's within you. Now, please hear, the, please hear me. It's still gotta be an articulated message. We can't just by good service or by excellent performance or by, you know, accolades, like all the de degrees and awards on the wall and stuff, they'd be like, wow, so Jesus died on the cross for my sin because you got that, that extra degree, wow. Nobody walks away from our kindness, from our degrees, from all of that stuff, knowing that Jesus died for them and they're a sinner that needs forgiveness. It's still an articulated message, but there's good news for us because the Holy Spirit gives us the words. Notice what Paul said in Ephesians chapter six, Paul said, the greatest missionary of all time, the one that when we think about what it means to tell people about Jesus, we think about Paul. I mean, his life was devoted to missionary activity. He said this, pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Did Paul not know the gospel? No, he knew it well. Did Paul not know how to share the gospel? No, he had shared it many times, but Paul knew that the power of the gospel is God's power to save. Paul knew that he could plant the seed of the gospel, he could water the seed of the gospel, but only God could grow the seed of the gospel in the human heart, making it produce fruit of the Holy Spirit. You and I are called to proclaim the gospel, but we are not called to save anyone because we can't. We can't even save ourselves. What a relief to know that you and I have the responsibility, uh, that we don't have the responsibility of making someone believe the message of the gospel. We can't, but we are called to proclaim the gospel, to make disciples and to do it all in the power of God's Holy Spirit. Peter says this reality, this message of the gospel is so incredible that angels long to catch a glimpse of it. He's not saying that angels are dumb, but that God has revealed to us sinners though we are, the greatest revelation that can be perceived. Angels know all about creation. They know all about heaven, but the mystery of the gospel remains to them a mystery, a mystery that God has explained to us through his salvation and through the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. Yet the fullness of our salvation is not yet realized. We are waiting, we are hoping, we are waiting and hoping for what? Peter says, therefore, with your minds ready for action, 
Be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter, while beginning a new sentence here from that long original sentence that is verses three through 12, does so in a way that connects the salvation that we know, the salvation of our souls with the salvation that we await. So we know salvation, but we await salvation, the salvation of our bodies and the full defeat of death itself. Notice what Peter does not say. He does not say that we are to set our hope completely on, what pe- on, on dying and going to heaven. He doesn't say that. He does not say, set your hope completely on what some people refer to as the rapture. He does not say, now set your hope completely on godly presidents and on just laws. He calls us to set our hope completely. There's a Greek word there that means all of it. Set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter knows that we need this orientation. And here's some key takeaways from this verse. Number one, his grace is even greater than we will ever realize in this life because it awaits the full revelation. I love when I am overwhelmed by his grace, when I am just aware of everything in my life being a gift from him. When I'm aware, when I take stock that I don't deserve any good thing in this life. And yet he has given me himself He's given me a relationship with him that will extend forever. And in addition to that, he's given me a godly wife and he's given me four children and he's given me this calling in order to pastor his people. All of these things are just a gift of his grace, but I'm just scratching the surface of what will be. I I can't even take it in all of the grace that will overwhelm me for all of eternity in the day of Christ. So our life is just gonna get maybe more and more difficult, but the grace that awaits us is gonna get greater and greater and greater. It's amazing to me that those who are most aware of their sinfulness and their neediness are the ones that most prize and savor his grace. I encourage you to join their ranks. Take stock of your neediness and and just enjoy the abundance of his grace because it keeps coming and coming and coming. Second, our hope as Christians is not ultimately in a place. It's not in being in heaven. We have taken our dreams of retirement and just said, well, I guess I didn't save enough to really be able to live that on earth, so I'll just live it in heaven. And so our idea of what awaits us is basically our dream retirement. That's idolatry. That's me wanting really big houses there. And that's me wanting boats there. That's me wanting golf there and football there. I mean, think about some of the songs that we we even sing. Come and go with me to my father's house. Yeah, there's a big, big yard. You can play football. And while there's an innocence there and there's this idea that there'll be Recreation, recreation in the new creation. I think it's dangerous for us in the condition of our hearts to just constantly foster materialism, all the while thinking that that's what God wants for us too in heaven. It's just more material rather than him. Our hope as Christians is not ultimately a place. It's not even an event. Just this moment when Christ returns, even though we long for that moment, we're not longing for the moment, we're longing for the person, the person, Jesus Christ. You see, like when, when family is coming to visit, 
You know, you're not just waiting for them to get there. You're waiting to be with them. You know, how, how tragic would it be that you've prepared everything, you're, you're, you, you've readied everything, family is coming, and then they finally come and they arrive and they pull up in the driveway and you say, they're here. All right, let's go back to work. And then you're done. That make no sense. No, you embrace the person, the people, and you bring them in and you say, come in, let's visit. Let's be together. Our hope is a person. Where's your hope? What is your hope? Is it in Christ or in something else? Is your hope in your scorecard that you're keeping? We all keep it. Hoping that we've got enough good on the scorecard to hand in to God at death to say, I think I was good enough. Reality for that kind of hope is it will disappoint. And the reality is it's miserable to do it right here and now, to never feel like enough, to never feel like it's enough, feel like you're always trying to earn his love, to earn his favor, to earn a hope that is to come. But I have good news for you. Jesus came and died for you. He was buried for three days, but on the third day he was raised to show that he had defeated sin, not his own sin, your sin, and death, a death that he died for you, showing you, I've got you. Even though you go in the grave, I'm gonna come back and raise you. Jesus himself showing you all this, and now he invites you, just like he did Eric, to come and follow me. Come and follow me. God, I pray that in this moment, the man or the woman, the boy or the girl, that you right now in this very moment are calling to follow you by your Holy Spirit, God, you will work powerfully in their heart to cause this seed of the gospel that has been planted, that has been watered, that you, God, will cause it to grow in them and produce the fruit of your spirit. A love for you, God, that will burn for all of eternity and the knowledge that they are loved by you, the God of all of eternity. I'm gonna invite for everyone to stand for a moment and we're gonna sing. For some of you, this may be a morning where you or just honest with God, God, I've been putting my hope in basically an eternal retirement rather than an eternal, an eternal relationship. Just be honest with God about that. He wants to reorient you to himself, to take you away from any kind of idolatry that can creep in and make your life unfruitful. Just give your life to him again this morning as we worship. Rick, if you'll lead us.